Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at issue number 576, December the 16th, 1995, £1.50 every Wednesday. So this episode of the podcast is number 51 for the year. So yeah, there's only one left um, after this. I haven't actually gone forward and had a look at that uh, copy yet. Hopefully there's some reviews of the year and uh, things that have gone down in 1995. And I'm sure the first one of 96 will be a one of those ridiculous ones where they just list what every band's going to do for the year, which just makes it really hard for me to read out on the podcast because, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, there's no point me at the start of 96 saying, oh, sorry, 1996, Fear Factory went on tour. No one, I, I mean, we care, right? Of course we care, but no one needs to know that. Uh, I always think the interviews and the live reviews and reader feedback and that kind of stuff is more interesting um, I mean, obviously, the news is really good. I, I, I do, I do like the news in Kerrang because I feel like that's sort of keeping you abreast of what's happening during that week. But Kerrang making predictions of what's going to happen in the future that year for that band, I don't think it really works on a podcast. Anyway, I'm forward planning what I'm not going to tell you in 1996. So why don't I go ahead and tell you what I'm going to talk about in this episode? Blimey! The cover stars for this week are Paradise Lost. Beer and Loathing in Tokyo, Paradise Lost, pissed and poisoned on their first Japanese tour. Also, Offspring, singer in near-death experience. Fear Factory, Burton's Guide to LA. Garbage, Shirley Manson on Brad Pitt's knob. Sepultura, people are worth more when they die. Terrorvision, fired up a Larry studio exclusive. Four posters, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Therapy Corn. And Giza, Reef, Sugar Ray, Green Day and Filter. So yeah. Quite a lot to get through in this episode. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang Back Issues, we can be contacted uh, on Instagram, Kerrang Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang Pod, and email, Issues at gmail.com. Also, look out on our um, social feeds, Instagram and Twitter, for the Singles of the Week playlist. Um, they will be getting put up every week uh, from now on. So, yeah, look out for those. Very good. Uh, a good way to discover what was going on that week in music. Blimey. <laughs> I'm recording this quite early in the morning. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you can tell. I'm trying to I'm trying to get as much recording as I can done before uh, all the works that are going on in my flat, uh, the workmen turn up. So I'm trying to I'm trying to beat them, but they do seem to be starting at eight o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> as I'm recording this, it's about quarter to eight in the morning and it's dark outside, but you know. That's what I do for this podcast for you, the listener. Totally worth it. So, this week's issue was created with the following stimulants. Post-production geezer John Moore's sensational transformation from Lord Grunge to Lord Heavy. South African scanner Birgit's ecstatic response to her first ever glimpse of snow. A two-pound jar of roses, chocolates from Nice Guy Andy Coppin. Freshly purchased boxes of thermal underwear. London Bloody Underground. Snapper Paul Harry's his ludicrous new ankle-length leather coat. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Starting this week, where we always begin, news. Offspring singer Dexter Holland nearly beheaded himself in a bizarre crowd-surfing accident during a secret show in California last week. 
The band were performing at Linda's Doll Hut in Anaheim, which has a capacity of 49, when Holland smashed his head through the venue's roof, narrowly missing a ceiling fan. Although a shaken Holland could have killed himself, the band were more concerned about paying club owner Linda Jemison, a regular supporter of the band during their early days. The gig itself was arranged to thank Jemison for her help. During the show, the band played a selection of tracks from their 8 million selling Smash album, including Gotta Get Away, Self Esteem, Come Out and Play, as well as a handful of songs from their recently re-released self-titled debut album. The highlights of the set, aside from Holland's accident, were the two surprise covers that the band played Deep Purple, Smoke on the Water and Basket Case by their fellow multi-platinum punks Green Day. Following the Anaheim show and a Rock for Choice benefit gig at the Palladium in West Hollywood with Rancid, Offspring are taking a short break before starting work on their new studio album. The band are expected to record quickly with a release date penciled in for next spring. And despite many major label offers, Offspring have insisted that they will remain on Epitaph. Offspring will also hit the road shortly after the album's release, already speculations linking them with a prominent slot on either the Reading Festival or Glastonbury Festival bill next summer. Metallica have threatened legal action against a radio station in Detroit who were playing live recordings of two new tracks from the band's forthcoming studio album. Ironically, the two tracks, 2x4 and Devil Dance, were recorded by BBC Radio 1 at Donington 95 in August and have previously been broadcast on the station's Sunday rock show. Bootleg tapes of the broadcast have been circulating in the US with interest naturally focusing on 2x4 and Devil Dance. Indeed, Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich had earlier admitted the band were aware the tapes were floating around, but they weren't especially concerned about it. However, when the Detroit station reportedly got hold of the tapes and began airing the new songs, they were immediately serviced with cease and desist orders. Metallica are still working on their eagerly awaited album in San Francisco. It's due for release in May. Green Day have just finished shooting two new videos with director Kevin Kerslake, who previously worked extensively with Nirvana. At the same time, they have also been given Courtney Love's seal of approval. In the latest issue of US magazine Spin, Love says she wishes her husband Kurt Cobain had lived to witness Green Day's success and the ensuing punk explosion in the US. He would have been proud, she said. The trio have filmed two promotional videos for the songs Brain Stew and Jaded from their current album Insomniac, with Kevin Kerslake who directed both Nirvana's Come As You Are promo and their long-form Live Tonight sold-out video. He also helmed Filter's Hey Man Nice Shot promo. The two Green Day videos are expected to be re released next year. The trio are currently on tour in the US, where they're continuing to draw sell-out crowds despite the fact that Insomniac has so far failed to repeat the success of its predecessor. In recent interview with the LA Times, main man Billy Joe Armstrong insisted that the band paid no attention to sales figures. If we don't sell as many records this time, it's not a big deal, he said. Whatever you know, so what? In the same article, Armstrong revealed that the more serious lyrics on Insomniac have been inspired by fatherhood. His eight-month-old son Joey and drummer Trey Cole's ten-month-old daughter Ramona have been taken on the road with the band by their fathers. Becoming a parent influenced my writing from an emotional standpoint, Armstrong reflected. Right now, it's easier to keep track of them because they're not walking yet. They're too little to listen to the music though, it's too loud. Green Day will release a new single, Stuck With Me, through reprise on December 27th. They are set to return to the UK for a full tour in March. Noisy Mothers, the popular weekly ITV rock show, has been cancelled. The last programme goes out this week and there are no plans to bring it back in 1996. 
This will mean that there will be no programme catering for rock music on terrestrial TV. Apparently, the hour-long programme, which is hosted by Anne Kirk and Crusher, has fallen victim to a change in attitude at ITV, which has seen virtually all of the late-night specialist music programmes being scrapped. But a company, who make Noisy Mother's music box, are determined to fight the decision and force the ITV authorities to change their minds. Kering has already received a number of phone calls and letters from outraged Noisy Mother's viewers. As a result, we're urging Kering readers to write to their local ITV station, supporting the campaign to get Noisy Mother's back on our screens. Send your letters to the following addresses. It then just goes through and lists um, all of the uh, different versions of IT, Yorkshire, Midlands, London, Northwest. I'm not going to read those out. Kiss bassist Gene Simmons has failed in an attempt to buy the movie rights to the story of California punk legends The Dead Kennedys' 1986 legal battle over their Franken-Christ cover art. It was the most ridiculous offer we've ever received, says former Kennedys frontman Jello Biafra. The Dead Kennedys, who have since split, were taken to court in the US by the infamous PMRC organisation on obscenity charges. The PMRC claimed that a poster depicting a landscape of penises by acclaimed Swiss artist H.R. Geiger, which the band gave away with their Frankenchrist album, amounted to distributing obscene material to minors. The band subsequently won the case. Biafra has spent much of his post-Kennedy's career concentrating on spoken word albums. However, he has contributed one track, Still Is Still Moving, to the tribute album to country icon Willie Nelson, Twisted Willie, which will be released in the US through Justice Records in January. It's the closest sounding thing to the Dead Kennedy's holiday uh, in Cambodia he ever came up with, explains Biafra, and the lyrics are cool too. Napalm Death's American guitarist Mitch Harris was deported from the UK for the second time within a year earlier this month. Harris was returning to Britain with bassist Shane Embry after a promotional trip to the US when he was stopped by customs officials. He was informed that his visa had expired whilst he was travelling between New York and London and that he had filled in the wrong forms to obtain an extension. He was then sent back to the US on the next outgoing flight, leaving the band to complete their recent series of low-key UK gigs as a four-piece. He has since returned with the proper paperwork. Embry, meanwhile, has faxed Kerrang in response to our recent revelation that he was once described as Jockey Wilson with a Brillo pad uh, on his head. I find this very insulting, he said as I'm a far better darts player. American news, and we start this week with Don Kay in New York. Anthrax swung into town with the Deftones and Life of Agony in tow this week. A sizable number of New York metal industry types and musicians were in attendance. Pete Steele of Type of Negatives was seen signing autographs. All of Sepultura were there for a while before returning to a late night mixing session, along with Bobby Gustafson of Screw, all four former members of Law & Order, now not known separately as Dogma and Uranium 235, and was that ex-Danzig guitarist John Christ lurking in the corner. All of Anthrax showed up at the after-show league to greet friends, except for an ailing John Bush, who was suffering from a sore throat. At the gig, much was said off the record about the lack of support the band's record label Elektra have given their new album Stomp 442. There was also a rumour in the air that ex-Exodus guitarist Gary Holt was being considered to fill Dan Spitz's vacant slot in the band, which is currently held by former roadie Paul Crook. 
Another interesting rumour doing the rounds concerned the imminent demise of one of the major death metal bands obituary. It's whispered the brothers uh, Donald and John Tardy haven't been getting along very well lately. The band's last album, World Demise, didn't advance the band's career in any noticeable way, which may have also aggravated band tension. Why were 2,000 people trying to get into the 400 capacity Coney Island High Club to see Quasar and Alleyway Crew, aka the Beastie Boys, and Sick of It All? The Beasties played an all hardcore set, while Sick of It All played an all hardcore set as well. The Beastie Boys are in town working on a new album. We've heard some more of uh, Sepultura tunes Spit, Straight Hate, and Roots. They're undoubtedly the heaviest tracks the band have ever recorded but they also delve more deeply into their musical heritage as Brazilians. The sound achieved by producer Ross Robinson and mixman extraordinaire Andy Wallace has to be heard to be believed. What we grasped was a virtual wall of throbbing, all-crushing brutality. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. Pearl Jam have finished work on their fourth studio album, which they originally started work on in New Orleans last summer. They're planning to release it early next year, What's more, the band will also tour Europe for the first time in, ooh, absolutely years in March. Before they leave their, uh, their hometown for the trek, there's a possibility that they'll play free warm-up shows at Seattle's Center Arena. Soundgarden are currently recording at Seattle's Lifo Studios, which just happens to be owned by Pearl Jam's uh, Stone Gossard. No word on any release date yet. In the meantime, fans should check out their current CD+. Plus Alive in the Super Unknown, which features performance and interview footage and unreleased versions of three songs from Super Unknown. Super Cool Plus. Seaweed, the punkish band from Tacoma, Washington, who were formerly signed to Sub Pop, have recruited drummer Alan Cage previously with a now defunct Quicksand. Cage steps in following the departure of original Seaweed skinsman Bob Bolgrium, who left the band over the time honored musical differences. Cage's first gig with Seaweed was at the Bender Arena in Washington DC at the beginning of December. Another ex-Quicksand man, uh, guitarist Tom Capone, has found a new project. He joins Handsome, who also feature former Helmet guitarist Pete Mangede and drummer Peter Hines, ex-Murphy's Lord of Cro-Mags. The band recently put out a 7-inch single through Sub Pop and have now signed a deal with Epic Records. We now join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Despite five plus years of media frenzy, not everyone is completely au fait with the Seattle music scene. Take for example, Michael Kinsley, the former editor of US highbrow political magazine New Republic and star of CNN show Crossfire. Kinsley has just moved to Seattle from the East Coast to start up a new online magazine on the internet. Now news might well be his business, but it seems he hasn't been paying much attention to anything that's happened to popular culture during the past few years. In an interview with a New York Observer, Kinsley was asked if he'd ever heard of Nirvana. What is that? Some sort of rock band, he replied. What is grunge exactly? It's a kind of music. Look, I don't claim to be hip or cutting edge or anything like that. An all-star cast of Seattle luminaries will appear on Twisted Willie, the tribute album to country music's living legend Willie Nelson, which is set for release on Justice Records on January the 30th. The probable highlight of the album will be the combination of ex-Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic, Alice in Chains drummer Sean Kinney, Soundgarden guitarist Kim Tal, and Nelson's uh, fellow country icon Johnny Cash on Time of the Preacher. Other artists featured will include Screaming Trees' is Mark Lanigan and Barrett Martin, Mud Honey's is Dan Peters, Alice in Chains' is Jerry Cantrell, The Reverend Horton Heat, President of the United States of America, L7, Super Suckers, and Jello Biafra. 
The Seattle Police Department are probably breathing a sigh of relief this week as the city's leading anarchist band, uh, Chikung, head off for a few weeks on a national tour. Previous shows have been packed with cops, keeping an eye on the band who are keen Earth First supporters and self-proclaimed eco-terrorists and their ever-increasing army of fans. We now go on location and this week Jason Arnold tours Los Angeles with Fear Factory main man Burton C. Bell. Fear Factory singer Burton C. Bell is crouched on a Los Angeles pavement, fiercely scraping a small coin on the hot concrete. If you file one side down like this, he explains, the parking meter thinks it's a quarter. These are suburban terrorist tactics. The war against the machine starts here, as does a rough guide to Burton C. Bell's favourite places in Hollywood. The singer came here in 89 from Washington DC, so he's had plenty of time to check the place out. LA was such a culture shock for me, recalls Bert, stirring a double iced coffee in his favourite cafe, a cultured little place with pictures on the walls. Everyone in Washington was really highly strung. Then I got here and people were so laid back. There's also a lot of air-headed people in this town, but I can relate to that. Six months after arriving, the singer bought the essential car. In LA, you need wheels to get a carton of milk. That's when I finally understood the place. You can't use public transportation in LA, it sucks. Bert has worked in everything from a porn cinema to a clothes shop to the Towers um, Records video store on Sunset Boulevard. In Tower, he met such celebrities as comedian Steve Martin. He's a real big star, so he didn't want to chat. David Bowie, the most suave motherfucker I've ever met with his wife Iman looking for a Steve Martin video. And horror director John Carpenter. We'd talk about movies for ages and he taught me a lot. Bert even did the typical Hollywood thing and wrote a screenplay called El Visionism. I still have it in the wings, he teases. Somewhere along the way, Bert joined a fresh band called Hate Face. He met Mexican guitarist Dino Cazares and Fear Factory were manufactured during the walk to a 7-Eleven. But Dino was a fun guy to party with and he wanted to start the same thing right from the start. The coffee in here is so strong that we start to get delirious. Fuck shudders Bert, hands trembling. Time to leave. Bert shows us Crazy Girls, the titty bar from Pulp Fiction where Marcellus talks to Bruce Willis. A great comic shop is next on Sunset Boulevard, just down the road from where British actor Hugh Grant almost had his career blown by a prostitute. Before we settle on a Thai restaurant, fudge ton of nail bomb man Alex Newport is in here by complete chance. We finally head along winding mountain roads for the town's massive observatory. Put a quarter in a telescope and you can see close-ups of muggins in every street. Joke. But how easy is it really to die in LA? Burton shrugs. I've had no really bad shit here, apart from the bullet that flew through my apartment window one night while I was there. It was a drive-by shooting that missed. Pretty scary. Oh, is that all the shit you've had? How about earthquakes? Well, the last big one was in January 94. It destroyed my last flat. I just came home and the roof wasn't there anymore. I just left it as it was and slept on people's couches for a year. You can't do fuck all about an earthquake, he laughs. Nature is fucking everything. So I don't know how you could run from that. Actually, they tell you to curl up in a ball in your bathtub. Come to LA, there were fewer murders this year, or alternatively, bring your bathtubs to London's Astoria on December 21st. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Next up in Kerrang, we have Lives. And the first concert reviewed this week is Reef, live at the Rock City, Nottingham, on Wednesday, December the 6th. This one is reviewed by Paul Brannigan, and he gives this a 3 out of 5. Walking into Rock City tonight feels like a 70s flashback. Tie-dye t-shirts are unveiled and the smell of dope hangs heavy in the warm air as fat reggae beats chill the crowd out for the arrival of Glastonbury's hippest only rock band. 
Let's get mellow, the message appears to be. Hippie nonsense. We've hit the stage to distinctly unmellow cheers and screams of feed me you fuckers from this bloke standing to my left. It's been a big year for this young quartet with top 20 singles and solid gigging laying the Sony advert this year's stiltskin jibes firmly to rest. Reef looks set to be a definitive Kerrang band for the 90s, and yet there are still a few minor clouds on the horizon. The biggest problem tonight is not the songs themselves, but the fact that Reef are loose and relaxed to the point of being comatose. For a band who have played in front of so many big festival crowds, Reef don't project much character from the stage. Gary Stringer has an annoying habit of fiddling around under his t-shirt which makes him resemble a whiner adjusting his flies, while Jack, Kenwin and Dominic are content to beam perfect smiles and lose themselves in the groove. All too often, it's like watching a band jamming in rehearsal for their own entertainment. Indulging their muso pretensions, dragging tunes out isn't always soulful and dynamic, sometimes it's just plain fucking boring. It's one of life's cruel ironies that when you have one huge tune it tends to put the rest of the set in the shade. Naked is Reef's runaway train. There smells like teen spirit, the undoubted musical high point, after which things seem a bit anticlimactic. Tonight they bravely, foolishly play at mid-set and never really regain their momentum. Reef aren't merely a one-trick pony though. Naked apart, the likes of Good Feeling and Repulsive are powerful, emotive tunes shot through with soul and Kenwin House's tasteful guitar flashes. Feed Me is a stormer, raging hard against a cutting riff while uncomfortable rolls along on a smooth, uncluttered groove. Gary Stringer plucking lush vocal melodies out of the air. New song Summer in Bloom grows from a slinky funk bass groove into a booming monster chorus, boding well for the future. A few more like this and Naked will be looking nervously over its shoulder. As Reef stumble from one song to the next with barely a mumbled thank you, Gary Stringer's verbal constipation proves too much for one eager punter. Say something, you cunt, he screams. What do you want me to say, you cunt, replies a non-plus stringer. It's the only real band crowd interaction all night, and briefly it feels like we're at a proper gig, albeit a mediocre one. As the final notes die away, two guys behind me discuss the show. One great song, two good ones, and a lot of average wanking about, one concludes. Want a job, our kid? Next up we have Filter, supported by God Lives Underwater, live at the University of London Union London on Thursday, December the 1st. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 5 out of 5. God Lives Underwater have made a great debut album in Empty, but their live show needs work. The Dallas crew employs something of a 9 inch nails Alice in Chains Stone Temple Pilots crossbreed, often laced with bizarre samples. Empty is quite a heavily produced album, so it's a relief to see that the GLU can translate it to the live experience. They sound much heavier, and with drums shoved right in your ear sockets, the sprightly rhythms of stuff like No More Love can hardly fail to rouse you. Presentation-wise, however, the band score low, failing to physically mirror the energy of their racket. Frontman David Riley is of the stoned mic-clutching variety and manages little more than a subdued thank you between tracks. Pat's nerves are still a factor, but GLU can surely overcome. Filter are awesome. Their short bus album is an excellent grower with better songwriting than 99% of the industrial bands that Richard Patrick and the boys are generally lumped in with. What the album doesn't prepare you for is the gripping entertainment of their set. If you'll forgive the self-indulgence, I'm feeling supremely pissed off tonight. Filter are the cure. By the middle of this set, you find yourself clenching fists so hard as to leave nail marks on your palms. You find yourself grimacing insanely, blood pumping. This is music that the word cathartic was born to describe. Patrick walks on stage one-armed, the other in a sling. He's wrapped in bandages. Right from that moment, it's an unusual spectacle. 
But even more so when he starts yelling like an asylum escapee. He grins, snarls and seethes within the space of a few seconds. Hurls beer and Mike stands around everywhere and basically gives the impression of a man one strawberry short of a punnet. By day, he is a mild-mannered Clark Kent. By night, he is Satan, man. The rest of the band are slaving away on their instruments and songs like Take Another and Dose are heavier than Russell Grant carrying his food home from Safeways. It's over, tempers the pace slightly and the haunting line, I think you would be better off if you were dead. After Phil to hammer through an exhausting Hey Man nice shot, Patrick is so psyched with adrenaline that he rips off his bandages, his wounded arm hangs free as he tackles the final blast. This is healing for us all. Next we have Sugar Ray live at the Camden Underworld London on Thursday November the 30th. Reviewed by Jason Arnop, he gives this one 5 out of 5. You'd be forgiven if you expected Sugar Ray to be another of these highly irritating funk, ska, rock, anything that's popular bands who enjoyed limited success about 5 years ago. Sure, Sugar Ray are a pop puree, switching styles from one tune to the next, but they're also a sledgehammer heavy laugh riot. Neither their fluffy feisty album sleeve nor their name itself prepare you for the sheer excellence of their amusingly crushing assault. Frontman Mark McGrath looks like Henry Rollins with a sense of humour, making like a stand-up comic without ever becoming irritating. He squeezes plenty of all-out laughs from the crowd with lines like, We really want to be cool, but don't tell them. When the Underworld's much-hated curfew arrives, McGrath is one of the few frontmen to challenge the venue's time limit. He points at the desk operator and mock threatens, Turn my mic off and I'll come up there and kick your ass. Remember that at gigs, chuckles, rebellion? Pretty much everyone in Sugar Ray is a character, from the super cool scratching DJ to the stone bassist and the check-headed guitarist. It's a big bonus at a time when anonymous expressionist outfits have become the norm. The band's raging Mean Machine single track deserves much more than the 3k some twat gave it months back. Oh fuck, it was me. Anyway, there's also plenty of downright violent hardcore stuff that beats seven shades of sugar out of us. Mad men are dangling from the rafters and sadly someone gets carried out covered in blood. And Sugar Ray have a pink logo. Makes you laugh, doesn't it? Lastly this week, we have Guar live at the Abyss Houston, Texas on Saturday, November 25th. Reviewed by Chris Smith, he gives this one 4 out of 5. The line of hopefuls waiting to gain admittance to this sold out show stretches around the building and for what? All of the blood, bile and jism a person could possibly hope to be splattered with, of course. The concept never changes much with Guar, but the details are nicely updated. During the first song, OJ Simpson is beheaded and dismembered. Between all of the humour, however, there is a crisis unfolding. Guar's latest CD, Ragnarok, was named after a giant asteroid that is going to hit planet Earth on December 31st, 1999, and Guar have established contact with aliens who are going to remove them from the planet. One of these aliens has impregnated Slymenstra Hyman, and Odorous Urungus is mightily angered. At first he wants the coat hanging a fetus, but opts for Caesarean Bysaur instead. The amount of bloodletting, brain juice splashing and baby alien vomit spewing which follows is spectacular, matched only by Odorous ejaculating after having been jacked off by an alien device known as a, a pussy on a stick. The music is hardly the point, but it ought to be at least be mentioned. If the band were to capture their live sound on record, their LPs would be listenable. Just. Close your eyes and it's simple but tight and catchy, like a punk twisted sister. But anything with this much juice trading hands is best done with the eyes open anyway. The Boot Boy Beatles, Brit Rock Fab 4 Terrorvision, have just finished mixing their third album in the world famous Abbey Road Studios, where the Beatles recorded many of their classic songs. Paul Elliott enjoys an exclusive playback. 
Terrorvision have completed work on their third album amid scenes of drunkenness, petty crime, golf and Beatlemania. Our exclusive pictures show the Vision hard at it in London's legendary Abbey Road Studios home to the Beatles throughout their 60s heyday, and also the place where the new Beatles anthology album was pieced together. Terrorvision spent the whole of November at Abbey Road mixing tracks for their new album which is still currently without a title. I'm not saying anything last Terrorvision bassist Lee Mark Lou. There's a bit of a theme running through the album, I'll tell you that. Is this the James Bond vibe where you were talking about when Karain found you drunk and leery at a recent London gig by Grunge's possible next big thing dishwaller? Uh, it could well move along James Bond lines, he admits, rumbled. The cover will definitely be a lot grander than the last album. That last album was of course How To Make Friends And Influence People, a breakthrough record release for the Bradford Boys. That record sold almost 200,000 copies in the UK thanks in no small part to five major hit singles, top tunes like Oblivion, Middleman and Pretend Best Friend. But if you thought Terrorvision would simply knock out more of the same fun pop metal stuff this time around, think again. The new album is a bit harder and darker than the last one which might surprise a few people. I'm sure a lot of people thought we'd just bang out a few more Beatles style songs like Middleman or quirky pop songs like Oblivion to capitalise on the success of the last record and that's not what we've done. The new album is a good progression for us, it's more direct, harder. The Terrorvision boys have had a top time in London during the mixing of the new record. Oh yes says Lee, mixing is very easy compared to recording, we just have to hang around the studio and throw in the odd suggestion while Roy the engineer and Gilda producer do all the work. We only start around lunchtime and we've had most nights free so we've been making up for the fact that we've not been on tour for ages, we've seen loads of bands and we've drunk quite a lot too. We usually break at 6 for dinner, the wine would start flowing and it'd be like, where's the party? The Dishwaller gig was part of a typical television night out in London. They started out getting pissed on a few bottles of wine in the studio, then moved on to the borderline to watch Dishwaller as a favour to a mate of theirs who was there as a roadie. The next stop was the premiere of the new Bond movie Goldeneye, followed by another gig happening, uh, rock rap party king's dog eat dog at the Camden Palace. Much beer was downed. Just one problem. They didn't actually get in to see Goldeneye and hobnob with the stars. Apparently Emmerdale star Steph Armstrong got in though. We just went to have a bit of a look, Lee explained, not too helpfully. Yes, Terrorvision do like a drink, but they also got some serious work done at Abbey Road. The new stuff sounds amazing. There was a good vibe going into Abbey Road after all the Beatles hype Lee smiles. We did one track with a full string section in Studio 2 where the Beatles recorded most of their songs. That were a good buzz. There was a little cupboard in the studio, apparently they used to sneak in there to smoke a joint when the producer wasn't around. And the funny business at Abbey Road hasn't stopped. Lee and guitarist Mark Sark Yates shared a flat adjoining the studio during the first couple of weeks of mixing, and in the second week, the poor lads were burgled. They nicked my Sega Mega Drive, including the golf game which I got really good at sizely. They took my mobile phone too, I were gutted. The local plod have failed to recover Lee's gear, he turned to real golf instead. I've got a game with Alice Cooper later, he lies. Terrorvision singer Tony Wright is spending a lot of his spare time on his mountain bike. Stark prefers running. Drummer Shutty is happiest doing fuck all. Terrorvision are making the most of this free time. Next year is all gigs, bars and hotels. Fuck the Beatles. Terrorvision mania is set to grip the nation once again. Feedback and the letter of the week this week begins, let me throw a name in your general direction. You might recognise the name and be able to answer a few questions for me. That name is Anthrax. You know, the four guys from New York. 
They are possibly one of the most influential bands in the last 11 years. Remember I'm the man? Bring the noise? In my humble opinion, if it weren't for Anthrax, we wouldn't have bands such as Dog Eat Dog, Sugar Ray, Juster, Shoots Groove and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. In case you people haven't noticed, Anthrax have just released one of the best, if not the best albums of 1995, which received little or no coverage in your magazine, apart from a half-page review and a one-page article with Scott containing information any fan of the band already knew. Why has Karang shown these guys absolutely no interest at all? It's a crime not to have big articles, even posters about them in Kerrang. Oh how stupid of me, I forgot they aren't called Green Day, Offspring or Bon Jovi, so they have absolutely no hope of any coverage in your magazine, have they? Take for example, when Danny Spitz left, what did Kerrang do? Gave it a 2 inch square box in news. Any serious music fan in 1995 should have Stomp 442 in their collection. If they don't, they should be ashamed of themselves. James L from Bray. Way back in September, I found out that Foo Fighters were playing at the Town & Country in Leeds. The day tickets were put on sale, I bought some for me and my mates. On the night, the support of the show were built to spill, who were listenable, rather like Pavement, who were ace. But the place was full of little bastards who only went to the gig because the bloke used to be in Nirvana. These fuckers thought it would be funny to throw pint glasses on stage. This is very immature. Why can't people give a band the respect they deserve for getting up on stage and playing original material to an audience who haven't heard of them? But the worst part uh, was, was when I was standing with my mates when a fucking security twat grabbed hold of me and said, you, out for throwing things on stage. I put up a reasonable verbal fight, but this sucks because there is nothing you can do about it. Two other security guards weren't sure I'd done anything, but they had to back up their colleague. Fuck the security and fuck mindless little wankers who throw pint glasses at bands. Rob Wright, Leeds. I want to say thanks to Rob Flynn for inspiring me to check out the killer band Korn. I bought the album in June as an import and it kicked much bottom. I then went to see Korn at the LA2 in London last month and I couldn't agree more with Morat's review. They are mental. My message to all Kerrang readers is obtained by any means necessary to Korn album as it'll blow your head off. Also, if you haven't already, check out Sugar Ray, Dog Eat Dog, Life of Agony and Fear Factory. What more can I say here apart from Mother's Day Out, where the hell are you? I would just like to reply to Shelter's Ray Capo, who took it into his head to have a go at good time bands in issue 572. Who the fuck does he think he is? He's certainly not the authority on life and music he seems to think he is. He used the tired old sex, drugs, rock and roll cliche to slam bands who write about their own lifestyles and having a good time. He seems to think this is wrong and seems intent on trying to convert metal fans to the Krishna religion. I'm an atheist and I get pissed off when people try to shove certain other things down my throat through their music. Religion, for example. Capo's blatant hypocrisy got me well pissed off and I would like to tell him that if he doesn't agree with promoting the wrong message in music, he should realise that the wrong message is a matter of opinion. Phil Alawa. Gagging for a shagging. Please make my day and print a picture of Eddie Vedder in the gagging for a shagging slot. He's my only ambition in life. That guy's got more feeling in him than the male population of England. He's my hero. Lee Mason, Preston. Oh, sorry, not Lee. Leah Mason from Preston. As the duty manager at Derby Railway Station, I would like to thank all of your readers who attended the Monsters of Rock concert at Castle Donington this year. After the concert had finished, rock fans came to Derby to get transport home, only to find that most of the last trains had departed. And as a result, we had around 300 people staying the night on the station. 
I have to say, people are quick to criticise rock fans with long hair, etc. But the 300 or so I had to stay on my station that night were some of the nicest people you could ever wish to meet. If it had been a disco with the same amount of people wearing suits, for instance, I would have been worried. Please can you pass on my thanks to all your readers who attended the concert that weekend, mentioning that we are all looking forward to seeing them again in 1996. John Kilroy, Duty Station Manager, Derby Station. What the fuck is going on? I've just heard that Noisy Mothers is being cancelled. Is there a reason for this or is Noisy Mothers not mainstream enough for ITV? They surely cannot just ignore those of us who are into metal, rock and grunge music. I, for one, would really like an explanation for this decision and I'd also like to know whose idea it was. I've watched every show for 18 months. It taught me most about music and I've come to respect it for not just being another music programme. Now there is no rock music on TV in the Northwest, apart from the occasional rock chart on the chart show. I know people everywhere share my views on this ignorant cancellation, so we should all write to ITV and tell them how pissed off we are with them. Ben Neild from Congleton. Ill communication. Let there be walk. Oh dear, Karen. Oh, that is, that is terrible, isn't it? That is not good at all. We now come to this week's cover stars, Paradise Lost. There's a fire on stage and drummer Lee Morris is collapsed in a gutter somewhere. Yes, we're in Japan with Paradise Lost for the week and main man Nick Holmes and Gregor McIntosh are furiously scribbling this exclusive tour diary. Come to Japan, they said. It'll be a blast. So Kerrang! photographer Ross Halfin hooked up with Yorkshire stars Paradise Lost for seven days in the land of the rising sun. It was the first time the band had visited the country and here, in their own words, is how it went. Thursday, November 23rd, the flight out. Nick, arrive at a meeting point late because my alarm clock didn't work, fucking thing. I'm bloody starving, but luckily our resident roadie and all round fat bloke Stig has bought a sandwich for me. How thoughtful. The others were hoping I starved. Bastards. We set off for Heathrow Airport. Arrive at the airport and I'm hungry again, so I scoff a burger and check in for the flight. I have never heard of the airline, so I presume it will crash. It doesn't, but it is bloody uncomfortable. I hate long flights because they're so boring, but on this occasion the food is a little better than usual. After watching the very mediocre Apollo 13, I sleep for about three and a half minutes, only to be woken for my breakfast of chicken curry. Who writes these fucking menus? Friday, November 24th, the first day, Tokyo. Greg. After a lengthy and tiring flight from London to Tokyo, most of the band and crew appear to be suffering from jet lag, but our journey doesn't end here. We're pleasantly surprised to discover our hotel is a further two and a half hours drive from the airport. Upon arrival at our hotel, we are greeted by a small gathering of extremely respectable looking Japanese men in suits who produce copies of Draconian Times and very politely ask for them to be signed. I decide to have 40 winks, which turns out to be four hours. By the time I wake up, everybody has gone somewhere. Nick. My hotel room has bilingual channels which make it possible to switch from Japanese to English by pressing a button. Impressive, eh? The pay TV is censored, unfortunately, but you can't have everything, can you? Or can you? There is a McDonald's serving Chinese-style chicken burgers. Fucking top news. So I rush out to make a purchase after emptying my sack. Japan is nine hours ahead of the UK. I stay awake to try and battle with a jet lag, which is difficult after you've been awake for 43 hours. But fuck it, let's sample the Tokyo nightlife. Roppongi is the happening area in Tokyo. We head for a bar called Pips, only to discover that it is now a posh wanky restaurant. So the Hard Rock Cafe it is then. Lee, Aaron, our tour manager and manager proceed to get fucking slaughtered on Long Island iced teas. Several hours later, Lee can be seen lying in the gutter outside the hotel and the git still miss paying for a round. Cheeky monkey. 
Greg. I venture out in search of food, which ends up being a McDonald's Chinese-style chicken burger and fries. Whilst trying to explain my order to a rather perplexed-looking Japanese man in a ridiculous red paper hat, two girls approach saying, Hello, Gregor. Will you sign our copies of Draconian Times, please? Finally, I receive my rather disappointing meal and leave for a queue of people wondering who the hell I am. Back in my hotel room, which is on the 36th floor of a skyscraper, I decide to watch a bit of Jap TV. After 30 minutes of trying to work out the rules to a bizarre quiz show, I go out and find the vending machine which contains tin cans full of hot, milky coffee. Which sounds good, but turns out to be shit. Got to try and sleep now, ready for our first gig tomorrow. Saturday, November 25th. Kawasaki Tokyo Club Seater. Nick. I wake at 8am and feel like dog poo as I suck on a wonderfully oversized chemically grown mandarin. Sleep again until 10am and proceed to Burger King. Do almost nothing today except admire Tokyo and get all over excited about the fact that you can buy hot milky tea in tins from a vending machine. These machines are literally all over Japan and all of them work. And they remain undamaged by the vandalising twats we're so used to in the UK. Greg. Today our manager Andy Farrow and myself meet up with Ross Halfin and take a train to Shinjuku to check out some bootleg CD shops. I've never seen so many bootlegs. There is even one of Paradise Lost at the Bazaar Festival this year. And so to the gig. We're on stage at 6pm with no support band. I don't like going on stage this early but apparently everybody plays at this time. Before the gig, some members of our crew warn us um, when they were here before. With other bands, the crowds were very reserved which doesn't exactly make my nerves any steadier. The intro starts. We go on and the crowd cheer like mad. At the end of the set, the crowd cheer so much that we break our leave them hungry rule and for the first time in our career play a second encore. Walk away by the Sisters of Mercy. After the gig, it's tea time and we're taken to a Korean restaurant where you cook your own food at the table. Then we proceed to get pissed till 5 in the morning. Sunday, November 26th. Kawasaki, Tokyo. Club Sita again. Nick. Our second gig here and I awake far too early to warrant a clear head. I eat breakfast at the hotel, too much junk food recently, and with a choice of fish, raw or cooked, or scrambled eggs, I opt for the latter. Then Lee and myself head out to the great Yoyogi Park for some photos. The rest of the band didn't get it together in time. I'm lucky enough to have my photos taken with a traditional Japanese bride, newlywed and looking stunning in her Japanese robe, and also with a scruffy black country spud called Morris. After a nice tin of tea, Kerrang Lensman Dr. Ross Halfin persuades Lee to have his photo taken with a wrinkly old Japanese tramp. Lee agrees and then we uh, try to decide who is the scruffiest and I think Lee wins hands down. After bagging a few video bootlegs from a rock store and purchasing some eye drops for my sore, tired eyes, we head back to the venue. Greg, I've missed most of today as I've slept in and I'm in trouble due to a photo shoot happening with Ross while I was sleeping off my hangover. I've only been up a couple of hours and I've got to go on stage for our second gig at Club Sita. It's another healthy turnout and a rampant response. After the show, we get presented with presents from the fans. Lee gets a load of old martial law bootlegs from his stint with them and I receive a top of the line Sony Disman and a 12 year old bottle of scotch. It's tea time again. This time, it's traditional Japanese cuisine. The meal is not really to my taste and when a still half alive and semi carved up fish arrives, I decide to skip on the food and go straight for the beers. All this time a girl who is a fan of the band has been following me and I have to get Kazayu, Ross's assistant and a native Japanese, to tell her that I'm a married man. Monday, November 27th, press day. Greg, up early today and do a photo shoot with Ross at Zojo Temple in Tokyo Towers. After the shoot, it's back to the hotel for a fun day of press interviews and then a pizza in the hotel, after which everyone piles into Nick's room for a piss up. Nick, 
At around 11pm, there is a rude phone call from Lee Morris. Apparently, he is admitting himself into the local hospital with suspected food poisoning. We laugh and carry on drinking. Tuesday, November 28th, Osaka, Warhol. Nick, after what seems like 15 seconds sleep, I awake early in order to travel from Tokyo to Osaka. Unlike British Rail, Japanese railways are the most efficient in the world, so we don't have to wait around for a train to arrive. The Hikari Super Express bullet train is there already, a fine specimen of modern transport. As we glide along, at 215 kilometers an hour, we spot the stunning Mount Fuji with its snow-capped peak. I'm reliably informed by Ross, did I tell you the one about Halfin? That it has telephone boxes halfway up. Impressive. Japan's occupied areas are incredibly flat, where mountains have been literally bulldozed down instead of being built on. Driving to the venue, I witnessed a man watching TV whilst driving, and another flicking through a porn mag whilst driving. Very poor. I tell anyone who'll listen. Greg. The scenery as we travel is like an amalgamation of Brazil, California and Sheffield. We arrive in Osaka, which is the city on which the Blade Runner set was based, so you can imagine the view. Neon as far as you can see. Buildings that aren't covered with neon signs look like something from Gotham City. The gig tonight is a small club, and after a series of power problems, it becomes apparent that the sprawling arms of high technology that touch the rest of Osaka haven't managed to penetrate the graffiti-ridden world that is Club Wohol. But this aside, the crowd tonight are again very responsive, and after the show it's yet another photo shoot with Ross, this time in the bustling centre of Osaka. As the crowds gather around in curiosity, we realise that a number of them, Japanese Julian Clary lookalikes in fur coats, are rent boys, so we can make our excuses and leave. Back at the hotel, after burning the candle at both ends since we arrived, this jet lag catches up with me, I hit the sack, then go to bed. Wednesday, November 29th, Nagoya, bottom line. Greg, on the bullet train again and onto the bottom line, a decent venue which suffers from yet more power problems. Backstage, I discover much to my amusement that our hypochondriac manager Andy Farrow has developed curvature of the spine. It's not surprising really, his receipt pat bung bag must weigh a ton. Tonight's gig is not very well attended to say the least. The only people here are a bunch of extremely devoted fans who have been at every show on this leg. The intro starts, we enter the stage and good old half-pint Morris plants his size 9's children's size on the power line which supplies the gig. After a few sparks and a small fire, we try again. Intro starts, we enter the stage and everything goes according to plan until Nick loses his voice halfway through and we have to cut the set short by 6 or 7 numbers. After a bit of top quality moaning from Mr Holmes, we go and meet some competition winners. They've won the chance of a lifetime to meet four miserable northern bastards and a cheerful brummy prick. Lucky bastards, eh? After this, we eat at a Mexican restaurant where our tour manager Mick eats some more dodgy satay. We say goodbye to Ross, more money than sense Halfin, who is flying from Osaka and go back to our hotel for a marathon four hours sleep before flying to Tokyo and then on to London. Nick, I do fuck all here today except write this diary, but I do sample some very nice cheese flavored popcorn a merrily sip on original Japanese absinthe, a hellish spirit derived from opium flowers, similar in taste to Perno, but 10 times as strong. I've been suffering from a rough throat for the last few nights, and unfortunately tonight at the gig it goes completely about three songs in. I persevere, but we have to cut the set short by 35 minutes. What a bugger. Feeling depressed, I down more Sapporo beer and head for dinner. It's a bastard to have to end the last gig like this, but it can't be helped. Sod off to bed at 11pm, and wake at 4am for a jacuzzi. Leave for the airport at 6am. Thursday, November the 30th, the flight home. Nick, the flight home is empty. 
Almost. So I've got loads of legroom. Fucking great. Japan is a brilliant country, but it's a shame it's not a short hop across the channel. Greg. Sayonara, motherfuckers. Singles, and these singles this week are reviewed by Ray Zell. And just a reminder that if you would like to hear some or most of these singles, then there is a playlist which you can find uh, with this podcast or on our social media channels uh, with all of the all of the tracks that are available on Spotify put into a very, very useful playlist. And the first of those singles reviewed this week is Primus with their single Winona's Big Brown Beaver. This one gets 3Ks. If you listen to even just a snatch of this, you can gather that Primus are as hillbilly silly as a honey nut loop. Winona's Big Brown Beaver is as amusing as it is confusing. Dave Perna would love it. Probably already does. The Oppressed with their uh, EP, Fuck Fascism. This gets 3Ks. Regulation, oi oi, terrorist chant affair, but with a positive sentiment. Uh, does seem somewhat perversely ironic, awarding this particular effort 3Ks though, done it. Contact AFA, BM, 1734, London, WC1N, 3XX. Ash, with their single, Get Ready, this gets 4Ks. I would have put my cash on Ash in the great single of the week stakes, but on hearing their version of the ever-cool Smokey Robinson tune, I was a tad surprised at its wishy-washy treatment. More distortion on the guitar, please. Still like it, though, and to think there's only a mere thousand copies in the entire solar system. Cruel. Very cruel. Isolation by Creator. This gets 3Ks. The Germanic noisemonger's return with a dot-to-dot thrash thing which manages to come across as neither annoying or overtly cerebrally punishing. Luscious sustain on the chords too. Although as to there actually being such a thing as a song connected with this deal. State of Kate with their single Kill the Ku Klux Klan. This gets 3Ks. Garage Metal, evidently courtesy of this Cheshire mob. Nice little changes going on in there. If you care to listen out for them over the muffled production, probably growing you after nine or 10 spins. Alternatively, get a hobby. And the single of the week this week is Lump by the Presidents of the United States of America. This gets 5Ks. Quirky, smirky, and a Captain Kirky. Beam me up if you like, but the Pres lads are fantastic. Lump is an irresistible metabolism motivator replete with staggered catchy chorus. Trouble is though, the other tracks, especially the one about the obsession with Carolyn's bottom, equally put the zing in amazing. Stick a dick. Up your ass. That's what Sepultura's Max Cavalera told a crown of religious nutters at the gig that got them signed. From travelling in transit vans with loads of chickens to selling over 2 million albums, Max tells Paul Brannigan the truth about the Sep's success. For an international rock superstar, Sepultura's Max Cavalera looks kinda down at heel. His training shoes are held together by dirty strips of gaffer tape. He's been wearing the same pair of cut-off canvas trousers for years and Max couldn't be happier. It's an awful long way from the back streets of middle of nowhere Brazil to the smart New York offices of Roadrunner Records, but Max remains unchanged by the global success of Sepultura albums such as Arise, 1991, and Chaos AD, 1993. At heart, he's still the hungry, rebellious street kid, the Kiss and Motorhead worshipping music fan. He remembers all the cool South American bands who couldn't overcome financial and geographical problems to break through to the international market. 
That's why he is as helpful and accommodating as possible when people take an interest in his band. Yet music isn't everything to Max. The opportunity to cuddle one of his kids means more to him than 100 gold discs. A recent compliment from a Brazilian tribe elder, more important than any review. Cool. While his music may rage with anger and pain, Max seems content with his lot in life. So Max, did you ever dream that one day Sepultura would be one of the most respected and successful metal bands in the world? No, but I always believed that if you put your heart and soul 100% into your music and worked hard, that there'd be some payback. What do you remember most about Sepultura's early days? Our early practices were so fucked up. We had no instruments, so we borrowed gear of a rich kid in a death metal band called Armageddon. Igor's drum kit was just a snare, a samba drum used as a floor tom, and a brush shaft with a cymbal on it. He had that kit for two years. What were early tours in Brazil like? Mad but fun. We travelled on buses full of people and chickens and stuff, doing 48 hour drives to shows. It always makes me laugh when American bands talk about being punk rock just because they've toured in a van. If we'd had a van when we started, we'd have thought we were Bon Jovi or someone. How did your record deal come about? A record company guy saw us play in front of a rioting crowd. We played a gig near where a lot of organised religious groups were based and I went to the mic and said, I want all you religious people to stick a dick up your ass." One of the religious leaders wanted to beat me up and the whole place was going mad. I think we got signed as much for our attitude as our music. How does being in the band rate alongside your previous jobs? Being in Sepultura has its harsh, tough times, but I never consider it a job. I was a shoemaker in Brazil until I was 15, just so that I could buy guitar picks and strings, and I didn't enjoy it much. I'm grateful that I can make a living doing the thing I love most. So when did the money uh, first roll in? I don't think it has yet. I remember I didn't get to buy my first guitar until we went to New York to record Schizophrenia in 1987. And when I lost my trainers stage diving at our first London show, I had to go barefoot for a day because we had no money to buy another pair. I suppose, after Beneath the Remains, things became more comfortable financially. How easy have you found coping with fame? It's been no problem because we still think we're just the same as our fans. We're all just long-haired freaks with tattoos. Since Beneath the Remains took us out of Brazil, it's like we've been climbing a staircase of success, one step at a time, really slowly. I think bands keep their feet on the ground easier when they don't get their success overnight. Whether we play for 10 people or 10,000, we have the same respect for our fans. Anyway, I don't consider myself famous. I still get excited meeting my heroes. I remember meeting Lemmy in England. He poured whiskey over my head and I didn't wash my hair for a couple of days because I was so thrilled. Now that you've tasted success, how do you retain your hunger? We have a different hunger now for different things. We want to keep moving forward and breaking barriers. The worst part about success is when it can take a band's soul away from its music. And that seems to happen all too often. Hopefully, as we get older and wiser, we'll experiment more with music and give it back to our fans with even more excitement. We still have the same hunger and intensity when we play. The day when the four of us get on stage and nothing happens, I'll know it's all over and I'll never do it again. How important is financial success to you? Not very. If someday I lose some of my wealth, I won't be one of those fucked up desperate people who can't handle it. Since I was a kid, I've enjoyed the simple life. As long as I've got my family and friends around me, I'll be happy. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Next up in Kerrang! we have albums. And much like last week with Iron Maiden, there isn't a single album that's reviewed this week as the album of the week. It's a multitude of Ozzy Osbourne reissues. So 
The following albums uh, by Ozzy Osbourne are Blizzard of Oz, 3Ks, Diary of a Madman, 3Ks, Speak of the Devil, 2Ks, Bark at the Moon, 2Ks, The Ultimate Sin, 2Ks, Tribute, 2Ks, No Rest for the Wicked, 1K, Just Say Ozzy, 1K, Live and Loud, 2Ks, and No More Tears, 3Ks. And this review is done by Paul Elliott. Dear old Ozzy, John Osborne, lovely bloke, a real trooper, a character, mad, really. Could drink George Best under the table once. Like to powder his nose a bit too. Bit the head off a bat and a dove. And he pissed on the Alamo. Everybody loves Ozzy Osbourne, but nobody talks about his music. The early stuff, yes. The years between 69 and 79 when Ozzy fronted the most influential heavy metal band of them all, Black Sabbath. And the solo years? They've been a blur of banner headlines. Rock Madman battles the booze ad nauseum. True, Ozzy has an amazing survival instinct. Sacked by Sabbath, fried by booze and drugs. Ozzy picked himself up off the floor and ended up selling millions of records as Sabbath's career went down the toilet. All those million sellers are here among the 10 albums. Epic of remastered, repackaged and reissued following the release of Ozzy's latest album, Osmosis. Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman are the best of the bunch. Classic 80s metal. Sadly, guitarist Randy Rhodes died in 1982 when an aeroplane stunt went horribly wrong. So two albums is all Ozzy got out of him. Brad Gillis replaced Rhodes for the live album Speak of the Devil, on which Ozzy rehashed a stack of Sabbath tunes to preempt the Sabs' upcoming live evil album. Very cheeky Oz. It's also a bit cheeky of Ozzy to release four live albums in a decade, especially when Live and Loud and Just Say Ozzy are as bland as their titles. Tribute featured Rhodes posthumously. Bark at the Moon and The Ultimate Sim were cut in the mid-80s, Ozzy's glam period. Jake E. Lee provided the guitar frills before a young shag perm Zach Wilde muscled in on No Rest for the Wicked, Lame, and No More Tears, Better Ozzy. And there you have it, Ozzy Osbourne. Top geezer, average albums, however you dress them up. Next up we have Collection 2 by Misfits. Reviewed by Morat, this gets 4Ks. Hands up who'd heard of the Misfits before Metallica cranked out that magnificent cover of Last Caress on their Garage Days EP or before Duff McKagan rasped his way through Attitude with Guns N' Roses on their last tour. It's disheartening, to say the least, that particularly in the UK where they only ever played one gig supporting the Damned, all but a handful of snotty punk rockers completely failed to recognise the talent of one of the world's greatest rock bands, punk or otherwise. Surely it uh, says something about their music that 12 years after the Misfits split up, people are still talking about them. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just that cult thing. If no one ever saw them play, yet we all knew that they looked more like the cast of Night of the Living Dead than a band, and it was hard to find more than a scratch bootleg here and a worn out tape there, then perhaps we're getting unnecessarily dewy-eyed. But finally, you can make your own mind up without having to search the four corners of the earth or pay ludicrous import prices. Collection 2 is pretty representative of the lunacy that was The Misfits. The production is tinny, a few of the songs are laughably bad, Ratfink being a prime example, and the lyrics are extremely silly, but underneath it all lurks a talent that is indisputable. The Misfits were the Vincent Price of the rock world, capable of playing it straight and being genuinely scary when they wanted to, yet most times playing it for last with their slapstick horror. Many parallels can be drawn with the damned early on, including the intensity of their music and perhaps bearing Danzig in mind the fact that they blew it when they started taking themselves too seriously. Whether you want to hear the originals of those aforementioned covers, check out The Misfits' first ever single, Cough Call, or simply find out what all the fuss is about, Collection 2 is well worth splashing out on. 
Though with the slightly superior previously issued Collection 1 being properly distributed at last, I'd have to recommend both if you want all the classics. Play them as loud as Midnight Tolls, Vincent Price and Glenn Danzig would approve. Next we have Open Mouth Kiss by Leeway, reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this gets 2Ks. In the late 80s, Leeway were considered to be New York Hardcore's next big thing. Since then, they've been overtaken by Biohazard, Sick of It All, Dog Eat Dog, Civ, etc. And their new LP will do little to reverse this trend. The standout track is a cover of I Believe by Mank Punks the Buzzcocks, which says a lot about their own mediocre songwriting. Pleasant, but uninspired. Alt Music Hardcore. This album is by 7 Seconds, uh, reviewed by Morat Disquette's 3 Ks. One of the many great US punk outfits that never benefited from the so-called explosion, 7 Seconds still have remained one of the most explosive for over a decade. Alt Music Hardcore is a chance to catch up on all those long lost classics. The production leaves much to be desired but fumbles like Racism Sucks and We're Gonna Fight are rather special. Watch out for a new LP soon. Charts and the number one album this week is Queen Made in Heaven. Number one in the singles chart is Queer by Garbage. And number one in the indie LPs is Smash by Offspring. The readers chart this week comes from Lisa K from Southampton. Her chart begins one sad but true Metallica, two fuck the police NWA, three I'll stick around Foo Fires, four seek and destroy Metallica, five embers fire paradise lost, six sitting at home honey crack, seven refuse resist sepultura, eight if life is like a love bank the wild hearts, Nine Good Feeling Reef and Ten Dive Nirvana. Star tracks this week come from uh, Dave Derderer of the Presidents of the USA. His chart begins 1. 12 Shades of Brown, Junior Brown. 2. Who'll Buy My Memories, Willie Nelson. 3. I Should Coco Supergrass. 4. 1, 2 and 1984 Van Halen. And 5. Tracks on Wax 4 by Dave Edmonds. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues. 80 page Christmas double issue. Foo Fighters exclusive, the band of the year on Kurt, Success and the last 12 months. The Faces of 95 poster pullout, 16 pages of the best pictures of the year. That was the year that was, Machine Head Terrorvision, Paradise Lost, Green Day, Offspring and a cast of thousands in the ultimate review of 95. Sepultura, their new LP in depth. Dog Eat Dog, Christmas Shopping in New York. Courtney and Bon Jovi, what would you buy them for Christmas? Reef, how do they spend Christmas? The Almighty Just Add Life and the Wild Hearts. What's going on, Ginge? Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual with the last um, last podcast of the year. Yeah, the last one for 1995. I feel like this year's gone very quickly. A little bit, a little bit too quickly. But yeah, well, uh, I have to spend the Christmas break starting to look forward to 96 and see uh, see what's going to happen there. Should be should be an interesting one. They usually are. Enjoy yourselves, have a good week, and uh, talk to you all soon. Bye for now.